please turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, one of the difficulties of coming to speak someplace is, you know, you can't do a series, so you're trying to find something out of the ocean of God's Word and give people a drop on Sunday morning that's going to be good for them, that you don't have to continue. And so uh, my wife usually tells me, you know, why don't you preach this, or maybe you should preach on this, or whatever. And so this morning, I'm going to talk about government evil and the sovereignty of God. I think we are all aware of the evil trends in our world. Uh, Though never um, mentioned in our Constitution, erotic liberty is now superseding religious liberty. In fact, eating junk food is seen as more of a moral issue than, you know, giving invasive contraception to 11-year-olds without parental consent in some places in our country. Same-sex marriage is being pushed as normal, as healthy, as an alternative lifestyle. But being a Bible-believing Christian and standing on what the Bible has always taught is seen as a hate crime. Uh, You just see all these odd things. Uh, I recently uh, read something that describes schools who are thinking of trying to eradicate all personal pronouns uh, from their discussion in classroom because they don't want to offend people who want to change their gender day by day. Uh, The legalization of marijuana is kind of catastrophic, and the states that have legalized it realize, "Uh uh-oh, we've opened a Pandora's box. However, more states are trying to approve it. The family, marriage, faithfulness, purity are all being attacked. Evil is now being called good, and good is now being called evil. Forces are laboring to establish laws, which in the future will be putting more and greater pressure on churches not to proclaim the truth. But as a Christian, you know, you want to see the world, I don't know about you, but you know, you want to see a world where everybody loves Jesus, right? Where all your neighbors are wholesome and the the schools are wonderful and the politicians are honest and that's called the millennium. (laughs) And it's just not happening. America has enjoyed a very luxurious, abundant stretch of religious freedom And though our our Constitution gives us the the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the Bible gives us a right to suffer in the eternal lake of fire forever and ever. That is our right. But grace, superseding the justice of God, offers the free gift of eternal life to those who are willing to repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus. And as we see things proceed from bad to worse, men both deceiving and being deceived, we can grow kind of anxious, worried. I'm sure all of you are like that. You kind of have to try to cope with it, don't you? You read, there's so much junk in the world that, you know, what do you do? Just kind of like, you know, I'm not looking, I'm not listening. I mean, how do you cope with it? You know, what if you lost your job? Um, What if you lose your health care? What if you lose your social security? Uh, What if you have to give up the luxuries you once enjoyed? What if you begin to be persecuted? And if you find your security and hope in this world, if you find your security and hope in material possessions, wealth, ease, comfort, you are going to unravel as the world unravels around you. But if you have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then you have a rock to stand on. You don't need to be anxious. You don't need to fear. You don't need to be distressed. Why? We're going to find out this morning from Isaiah. Isaiah has two major sections in his prophecy. The first 39 chapters mostly speak of judgment. Judgment to Judah, Israel, and the nations. The second section, chapters 40 through 66, mostly give comfort to Israel, specifically Judah. There are some scary things, yes. There is some judgment, yes. 
But chapter 40 begins a very clear and decisive change of emphasis. And chapter 40 itself is really one of the greatest texts in all of Holy Writ. And if you could, I would like you to stand in honor of the Word of God right now. I'm going to read the entire chapter, and then we are going to pray and delve into verses 21 through 26 of Isaiah 40. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. If you don't have that version, maybe you can just listen, but follow along, uh, listen carefully, and try to grasp what this chapter teaches you about living in perilous times. This is what the Word of God says. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord. In the wilderness, make smooth in the desert highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice calls saying... He is answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all of its loveliness as like the flower of the field, the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by a span and calculated the dust of the earth in by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales who has directed the spirit of the lord or as his counselor has informed him with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice, taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold. And a silversmith fashions chains of silver. And he who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. And he seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. 
To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with The wings of eagles, they will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Pray with me. Father, we come before you humbled at this text. Wow, it is so amazing. There is so much here. And if nothing else, may it lift our eyes from this sin-cursed sod to heaven and to have a renewed and reminded understanding of the great God that we worship, the great God we pray to, the great God who sent his only begotten son so that we through faith in him could not perish but have everlasting life. Father, may your truth speak to all of us this morning. Father, may your spirit attest your word that we would all be impacted, all be changed as it performs its work in us who believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So we have this chapter in Isaiah. This is the spearhead of the encouragement of this portion of Isaiah's prophecy. Great words about a great God and his shepherding of sinful people. Israel right now is a sinful nation. Israel, for the most part, has rejected God. Israel is suffering from immorality and idolatry, just like we are in our nation today. The prophets are rising up, and they're not only talking about the Assyrians, who are you have already plowed under the 10 northern tribes. They're predicting that Babylon, which is not even a world power at this time, is going to rise up and take the nation of Judah captive to a foreign land. The people know judgment is coming. They know they have rejected God. They know that things are bad. And yet, there is comfort here. There is comfort here. And from this text, verses 21 through 26, I want to point out four questions you should ask about God, two answers you should remember, and two facts that will give you comfort even in an increasingly evil age so that you do not despair, you do not lose hope, and you do not fail to give God glory. First, Four questions you should ask. Look at verse 21, where we encounter the series of four questions, which have as their purpose to get us thinking about God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? The implied answer to all these questions is yes, 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 and yes. These are basic things. Everybody knows this. This is like God 101. Every Jew would know these basic facts about God, and every Christian should know these basic facts about God. But there is a lesson here before we even look at the facts about God, and it is this. When the world seems to be falling apart and or is falling apart, as it was for the Jews during the time of Isaiah, just as it is during our day, our thoughts and focus should not be on the world should not be on the evil, should not be on the corruption, but we should turn our eyes to God. To God. Not the world, not the worldly future, not our comfort, 
not on what we want or necessarily even our circumstances, but on God. We must keep going back to the basics of God, things that we know to be true of God, and remind ourselves of who is running the show. Who is sovereign over all? The Apostle Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. Not on the things that are of the earth. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There are these exhortations in the New Testament for us to be fixing our mind on heaven, on eternity, on the second coming, on the future, on our God, not on the world. Why? Why are believers told to fix their minds on the things above, on heaven, on God, on Christ, on eternity, and the second coming? Because when we fail to do that, we get afraid. We get discouraged. We worry. We fret. We grow anxious. We lose our hope. We lose, really, our good testimony before an unbelieving world. We lose our proper biblical perspective and worldview that God is in control, God has a plan, and God is executing that plan for his glory. Since God is all-wise and God is all-knowing, his plans cannot be improved upon. They are perfect because God is perfect. You read one newspaper and you're just tempted to scream in terror because of all the junk that's in there. You know, you have murder and rape and shootings and wars and economic catastrophes and natural disasters, which, of course, the Bible says are supernatural. They are God working to get our attention. Drugs and pornography and abortion and government scandals and the like. They're just pandemic. And newspapers have learned that if they preach good news, their newspaper dies. People by nature, are bottom dwellers. Or like those big suckers in the bottom of rivers that just suck up all the sludge. We love sludge. You have a newspaper where you put all the nice stuff and no one wants to buy it. Man, we want to learn about the nasty, dark, evil stuff. And so that's what we get. It's in the TV shows, it's in the paper, it's on the internet. It's just a constant force of negative, nasty junk. And all these things are crying out to you to pay attention to the world rather than God. Yes, you know, in order to be a responsible citizen, you can't live an ostrich life and just, you know, stick your head in the sand. I'm not saying that. But you must strive to look at things from God's perspective and look at God at the lens by which you look at the world. And four questions, the beginning of our text, really remind us, look to God. These four questions are designed to get us to just focus our thoughts. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you? And you just think, oh yeah, oh yeah. And if you don't do that, you're going to be paralyzed with fear, with anxiety. You're going to fail to see... uh, Uh, the goodness of God and the overall scheme of things. You're going to fail to be a good witness if you take your eyes off our great God and instead put it on sin-cursed men in a sin-cursed world. Isaiah asks you, do you not know, have you not heard, has it not been declared to you from the beginning, have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And what exactly are are you to know and remember and understand? Let's find out. Let's find out. And this brings us to our second point. The two answers you should never forget. Look at verse 22. Which directs our attention to God. It is he 
who sits above the circle of the earth. Now, just stop there. Uh, You know, remember, recall to mind what has always been understood, even from the foundations of the earth, from the beginning of creation, God is sovereign over all. Now, the the Israelites knew this intellectually, just as many Christians know this intellectually, that God is sovereign. I think if I were to give you a little quiz and say, hey, uh, do you believe God is sovereign? Write down yes or no. I think most of you would probably say yes. But when Israel saw the Assyrian Empire, their power, their cruelty, and God using them to judge the ten northern tribes, they began to get a little fearful. When the prophets rose up and said, you're going to be taken captive to Babylon because you're rejecting God, they got more nervous. Fear of the future, fear of trial, fear of suffering, fear of what might happen. They took their eyes off of God, forgot he was on the throne, forgot he was lifted up, forgot he was perfect in wisdom, infinite in knowledge, all-powerful, absolutely in control of everything that happened, and they begin to fret. So Isaiah comes on the scene and says... And he asked those four questions to drive their mind back to remember who is watching over the globe, the circle of the earth. It is our God. The same one we sang songs to, the same one we pray to, the same one that wrote the Bible, that same God is the God who is watching over all. And I know that if I were to give you a quiz and say, True or false, check this off. Is God all sovereign, all powerful, all knowing, all wise? You go, yep, 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 yep. And then what happens? Well, then we live like he's not. And this chapter is encouraging us to live like he is. Many live as if they do not believe these things. But just, you know, how sovereign is God anyways? You know, is God, you know, 75% sovereign? 90 98, 99.9? I like a definition by A.W. Pink. He really collects a whole bunch of Bible verses and sticks them together in this definition. But Pink, in his work, The Attributes of God, says, speaking of the sovereignty of God, quote, The sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy, being infinite, elevated above the highest creature. He is the most high Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him, none can hinder him. Divine sovereignty means that God is God, in fact, as well as name, and that he is on the throne of the universe, directing all things, working all things, after the counsel of his own will, end quote. The question is, do you believe that? Psalm 115, verse 3 says, but our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Do you believe that? Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his sovereignty rules over all. Do you believe that? Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 46 verses 9 through 11, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my goodwill. Calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, surely I will do it, end quote. Do you believe that? Is that your God? Because that is the only God. That is the God we worship. And Isaiah is trying to get the Israelites who are in these very wicked and perilous times to take their mind off their circumstances and to direct their attention to God to remind them of who God is. And if you're having trouble believing that God is sovereign over every detail of your life, try taking your eyes off your TV. Your news app, the secular talk radio. Look to the word of God and remind yourself who created and is ruling heaven and earth. 
God is not asleep. God is not unaware. God is never taken off guard. He's never up there going, whoa, Jack, man, I am so sorry, man. I dozed off there. Why this catastrophe happened to you? He never says that. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is ruling in absolute sovereignty, directing all events, like Ephesians 1.11 says, after the counsel of his own will. And when God looks down and sees great men doing great evil, how does he perceive this? Is he up there going, oh no, oh no. Let's look at the text. Look at the beginning of verse 22. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. There it is. They're like bugs to be stepped on. Tiny creatures whose power is insignificant to the almighty God. Early in the chapter, Isaiah compared all the nations together as a drop of of water in a bucket. You know, when you put a drop of water in a bucket, you can't really tell that any, like there's been any change, right? You can have a pair of scales and then dial them in so they're perfectly balanced and dust can fall in there. And it, what, what happens? Is it tilt? No, it's of no moment. Why? Because all the nations together are like a drop in a bucket, like a speck of dust. They don't even register compared to the infinite almighty God. A flea cannot tackle an elephant. A guppy can't swallow a whale. Men can't thwart the sovereign rule of God. They can't do it. It's impossible. But Isaiah is just getting started with his attempt to remind us of who this sovereign God is that rules heaven and earth. Who is in charge? Look in the middle of verse 22. Who, God, stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Now think about that one. You know, I don't know if you've studied astronomy very much or not, but you know, the universe is pretty big. It's pretty big. Our sun is a million times larger than the earth. V. Canis Majoris, the largest known star, is a billion times bigger than our sun. On a clear night, away from big city lights, maybe at higher elevations, you can see about 2,500 stars in the night sky in our galaxy, the Milky Way. The Milky Way is about 100,000 light years across. A light year is how the distance you can travel if, you know, your car is able to go 186,000 miles per second and driving that speed for 100,000 years, you could get across the Milky Way. Scientists estimate that our galaxy has some 200 to 400 billion stars. And get this, the Milky Way is a punk galaxy. The Andromeda galaxy is thought to contain some one trillion stars. The largest known galaxy, IC 1101, is six million light years across and contains some 100 trillion stars. Selah. (laughs) Pause and meditate on that one. They have taken close-ups of outer space. You've seen pictures taken with the Hubble telescope. And sometimes they think they find a black hole. There's been quite a few instances where they take a zoom-up picture of a certain portion and there's just stars everywhere and they see an extra little black spot. And one of these times they thought, oh, maybe there's a black hole. And so they zoom up the camera and they narrow down the focus so it's only focused on a little extra black piece. And then they just focus it on there and take a very long exposure. And when they did, and they blew it up, there were hundreds of galaxies in that little black spot. God says, the universe is like a pop tent. The 
that's what he's saying. He spreads it out like a curtain, like a pup tent to dwell in. All the universe is like a tiny little speck in the infinitude of God's being. This is the God who loves you. This is the God who sent his son to die for you. This is the God who calls you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Have you repented of your sins? Have you turned from your sins to place your faith in Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead? You need to do that now. Do not delay. Do it now. And if you have, you have no need to fear. It may appear this world is falling apart. It may appear that evil men are are getting away with great injustices and that there's just no end in sight, but there is an end. We're told about the end. And Jesus wins. Justice will prevail. Righteousness will encompass the whole earth as Jesus rules and reigns. And this is why Isaiah continues giving his second answer to the initial question, provoking us to ask, who is God? Look at verse 23. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing. Now just think about that. When God doesn't like a ruler, he doesn't just demote them. He obliterates them. To nothing, zero, gone, completely wiped out. Where is Nebuchadnezzar who stood up in his palace and said, Is this not Babylon the great that I have built? He's dead. Where is Belshazzar who took the holy articles and had the big party feast? He's dead. Where is Herod Agrippa who in Acts 12 stood in front of the the people with the morning sunlight shining off of his silver sequined gown and they cried out, it's the voice of a God and not a man. He was eaten by worms and died in that order. Where is Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great and Hero, uh, Nero and Hitler and Stalin and all these quote great men? They're dead. They're dead. They're gone. They're buried. They're in hell awaiting the judgment of the great day. Verse 23 reminds us that it is he who reduces rulers to nothing. Don't forget it. God has innumerable means to snuff the light out of men. A little allergy, a little bee sting, a little virus you can't even see, a heart attack, a brain aneurysm. He can take us out in a million ways. God reduces rulers to nothing. But look at the middle of verse 23, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. You know, where is Ramses and Cyrus the Mede and the Caesars of Rome and many others? They're dead. They're buried. They're powerless to do anything but suffer the just judgment of God. God not only created, but gives life to, sustains, and has every ruler and person and ant and gnat and mosquito and amoeba under his sovereign control. He's not just mostly sovereign. He is infinitely and absolutely sovereign. Look at verse 24, where three similar statements are made concerning rulers. Scarcely have they been planted Scarcely have they been sown, and scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. Uh, The word scarcely, as the the New American Standard and the English Standard Version have it, means no sooner are they. Uh, The NIV has it um, that just as they are getting started, it is picturing the rulers of the earth since, you know, compared to an infinite, eternal God, uh, the rulers of the earth are like little sprouts. You know, like when you plant seeds and they come up and they're all little bean sprout and they're like really tiny and tender. And then you put a blowtorch on them. <laughs> and then you go, they're gone. That's it. That's it. Look at verse 24. But even he blows on them, they wither. The storm carries them away like stubble. God only needs to breathe on kings and politicians and presidents and Supreme Court justices and they quickly wither, are driven away by chaff, like chaff, are gone. He's not up there going, oh no, this person's in power, what am I going to do? He put them there. He put them there. You say, oh really? Yeah, yeah, he did. You see all this evil in the world? 
You know, anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-Christ spirit. And then we remember Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. That's what God does. We remember in Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, where Nebuchadnezzar gets a message from God through this angel. And this is the sentence, is by the decree of the angelic watchers. And the decision is the command of the holy ones in order that the living, that's you and me, may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. We remember Paul's words in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, right? For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God, right? Some rulers don't even know they're servants of God, but they're all part of God's servants accomplishing his eternal decree for history. God is calling the shots. Remember what Proverbs 21 verse 1 says? It says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns the king's heart in whatever way he chooses. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 and 38 says, Who is there who speaks? And it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? The implied answer is that nothing happens that God either doesn't cause and or allow. He's never taken by surprise. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. Jonathan Edwards, the great intellect. He says, everybody who knows God knows that God knows all things and that he knows all things beforehand. So to know all things beforehand, to have the power to stop them and yet not stop them is to decree them. God not only knows the future, He has the power to stop anything he wants. And if he chooses to allow something, even something evil to occur, he has a purpose for it, for his glory. And if you know Jesus Christ, for your good. Remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah 46, that God declares the end from the beginning. His purpose will be established. He will accomplish all his good pleasure. You know, you may not prefer the president we have. You may not like his morals or his policies or his religion or his plan for the country. But I'm telling you this, God put him there. God put him into office. And that may make you wince a little bit, but remember, there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. That's right. Every ruler, good or bad, has been put there by God. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, but what about the evil ones? What about the ones who do great evil? How, how does God, why does God put them into power? Well, we could spend a long time on this. Well, let me just give you a couple of reasons. One, first of all, if God's going to put a ruler into power, there are only evil men to choose from. <laughs> That's one reason. There are no sinless men out there that he could stick on the throne except for Jesus. And that's the millennium, as I said at the beginning. Second, all nations, especially nations that work hard to reject God, work hard to remove God from all public institutions and wage war against God's truth and God's Son, deserve bad rulers. Though we may pray for a good ruler, though we may want good presidents and senators and congressmen and governors and mayors, we deserve bad ones. I mean, there is no question about it. We have done everything we can to get rid of God. But when you think about it, why, why does he do this? Why would he raise up an evil ruler? Well... You just look in the Bible, for instance, why did he raise up the Assyrians to punish the ten northern tribes for their rejection of God's truth? To conquer disobedient Israel. Then he raised up the Babylonians to judge Judah and Egypt. Then he raised up the Medes and Persians to beat up the Babylonians. Then he raised up the Greeks to beat up the Medo-Persians. 
Then he raised up the, the Romans to beat them up. You know, the history is full of nations rising and falling, and God uses evil nations to accomplish his good purpose. But listen carefully. God is sovereign, but he often accomplishes his sovereign will using various means. Let me explain. God sovereignly saves sinners, right? He does. But he also sent Jesus to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, to be buried and rise again from the third day so that all who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And how do people hear about them unless there's a preacher telling them about them? You and I share the gospel with them. You see, if you were to like witness to somebody and they came to Christ, you don't go, well, I just saved them. We don't say that, right? That would be like, no, 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 no. God saved them. Well, I thought you shared the gospel. You were the means God used to accomplish God's sovereign will. Just like evil rulers. There are many things God is working. We can't even comprehend it because his ways are so far above our ways. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 55 says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, think of that illustration I used earlier, so far are his ways and his thoughts above ours. They're just mind-blowingly different. Don't think of God's sovereignty as God only is involved, but think of God's sovereignty as God is in absolute control of all those he chooses to be involved. Knowing God is sovereign doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything, that we should be complacent and not pray and not share the gospel, not vote, not, you know, engage in good deeds. Why? Because God chooses those means to help us accomplish his sovereign will. He gives us an opportunity to participate in what he's doing. That's why when we pray, if you ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And even when we blow it and we don't pray as we should, the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words according to the will of God. Yes, God uses a lot of different things to accomplish His plan on earth and He wants to use every one of you to help further His plan. You just need to remember... That when the world is falling apart and you see that decline morally and spiritually and economically in our country, you need to remember God's ways are not my ways. It is my job to fix my hope on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And number three, Two comforting facts to remember. Look at verse 25. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? This is a rhetorical question. It really is comforting for a couple reasons. First, it reminds us that our God is incomparable. He is infinite, transcendent, unchangeable, righteous, compassionate, gracious, kind, long-suffering, eternal, etc. Whatever attributes make God unlike any other are packed into the phrase, to whom then will you liken me? And the applied answer is, there is none. There is no one like our God. And notice Isaiah, the name he uses here, the Holy One. Not only is God all-powerful and all-sovereign and great and infinite and all these other things, he's the holy God. What does that mean? It means he never does evil. He never thinks evil. He can't sin. He can't be tempted by sin. He never takes a bribe. He never breaks a promise because he is perfectly and infinitely separated from all sin and evil. He is absolutely, infinitely holy. Men, at their very best, the godliest of men are sinners still. And if you trust in them, usually eventually they're going to fail you and disappoint you. But Isaiah isn't done fortifying us to the trials and tribulations in this world. He brings us back to what he has already mentioned in the preceding context, giving us a second fact to remember, God sustains the universe. God sustains the universe. Look at verse 26. 
Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his power and the strength of his might. Not one of them is missing. God not only created the heavens and the earth, but he sustains them. That is, he causes them to exist. In God, we live and move and have our being. You know, when they send a satellite into space, you know, for cell phones or TV or whatever they use them for. Do you know that they have these little retro rockets on those um, satellites and they're constantly adjusting them? And if they don't, two bad things happen. Their multi-million dollar piece of machinery either drifts off into space and is lost or it enters into the earth atmosphere and it's burnt up. Now let me ask you, who adjusts the moon's orbit around the earth? Who adjusts the earth's orbit around the sun? Who is adjusting the orbits of all the planets around our solar system and all the other millions and billions and trillions of stars out there, all of their own little planets and moons. Who is orchestrating that? You have stars that are hurling, galaxies hurling through the vastness and finitude of space. Who's doing that? The one we pray to. The one we sing to. He leads forth their host by number with mathematical precision. Precision. All the planets and moons and galaxies and comets that are going through the vastness of space, God is not only sustaining them and keep them existing, but keep them doing what they're supposed to be doing. And if God is able to create and sustain and run the entire universe, surely he can deal with you and your problems. I mean, you're trying to potty train. (laughs) You're trying to buy that car. You want to get into that house. You're trying to get the job. You're getting fired from your job. You want to go to school. You want this college. You want that. Think about it now. God is really big, but he also transcends. He comes down to meet with you. You and I, through the blood of Christ, can boldly approach the throne of grace to find help and mercy in a time of need. You just walk in. It's like your cell phone. Imagine just having kind of the God phone. And every time you pull it out, God says, yeah, what do, I, what do you need? He's always online. He's always waiting. Well, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, He is online. And He is waiting. And you can talk to Him at any moment. The connection has been made through the blood of Christ so that you can talk to your God any time you want. The one who leads forth the stars in their innumerable numbers in the entire universe and sustains them. That God is here to bless you, to love you sent his son for you, wants to help you. Warren Wiersbe has written, quote, someone has defined circumstances as those nasty things you see when you get your eyes off of God. If you look at God through your circumstances, he will seem small and very far away. But if by faith you look at your circumstances through God, he will draw very near and reveal his greatness to you, end quote. Yes, we live in a wicked world. Yes, laws are are being passed which promote evil. Yes, legislation is mounting up against Christianity. But you can remember the basics about God, can't you? You can ask those fundamental questions. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? 
You can consider your God that it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces new rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root on the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. They are like stubble that the storm wind carries away. And you can remember our God is incomparable and sustains and runs the universe. To whom then will you liken our God? That you would be his equal or anything else would be his equal. He is the Holy One. You need to lift up your eyes on high. You need to remember who has created the stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of His power. The strength of His might. Not one of them is missing. So then you take a breath after you read the paper. And then peace like a river attends your way. And even when sorrows like sea billows roll, you can remember your lot because Isaiah has taught us to say, it is well. It is well with our soul. Pray with me. Father, we are very humbled. We're sorry that we're so sinful. We're sorry that we keep our eyes so often fixed on the things below. We don't obey your word like we should. We don't see you as great as you are. Our minds can't even get around how great you are. And even though your scripture tries to tell us words fail to describe the infinite, holy, just, compassionate, gracious, loving God who sent his son for us. And yet we remember this text, not just today, not just this week, but in months and years to come, especially as things uh, look like they're growing worse in our country. When we start feeling worried and fearful and fretful, may we remember those four questions which lead us to those two facts and those two things to remember. That you are sovereign, that you are good, that you are guiding all things after the counsel of your will. And may we take a deep breath and look to the things above, look to the second coming of Christ and place our hope in nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.